Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you? Listen, I am I'm thrilled, I really am, that one of my favorite Sundays of the year is coming up. Uh, this Sunday, we talked about it on the walk, and that is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it's often forgotten um, <laughs> next to Christmas and Easter, but Pentecost Sunday is just huge in the life of the church. And I think more than ever, I identify, I can identify with the first disciples and the position mm-hmm. they were in. And I remember years ago, and well, even recently, preaching the text from Acts chapter two about the day of Pentecost and thinking they only had 120 followers of Jesus. That's all that little group had, just 120 people. And now I'm thinking, boy, if we had 120 people on <laughs> Sunday, that would feel like a huge crowd. Um, but I can identify uh, with that group because, you know, Jesus uh, had ascended into heaven. They had him for uh, three plus years, and now they felt alone and uh, the same forces that uh, put Jesus on the cross uh, were giving them the side eye. And so I'm sure they were anxious and the times in which they were living were not pleasant. As a matter of fact, it was it wouldn't be long before persecution would break out against the church. And, you know, in, in these times of, you know, low church attendance and um, um, declined influence and um, lower resources, fewer resources in the church, I sense that um, same lack of agency in the world. Like, okay, we are at a place where if if God doesn't do something, we, we finally see that we, we cannot, mm-hmm. we no longer have the illusion of mm-hmm. being able to um, make some things happen. And so there is a kind of holy, healthy desperation that I sense in the church. And, you know, as I said to you on the walk, I also sense in the church a real anxiety that it's almost over, mm-hmm. that it may be time to pack up, it may be time to quit. Uh, maybe this thing is too far gone for even the God we say we believe in to rescue it. And so, you know, we've done all we can. So let's kind of pat ourselves on the back as we turn the lights off and think about what might have been. We had hoped Mm -hmm. (laughs) that um, something else would have happened. But, um, you know, let's just let's just walk back to our Emmaus. Um, looking sad and talk about talking about what used to be and how good it was in the good old days. And I, I think we are ripe for a Pentecost experience, not in the sense of we're going to fall on the floor and roll around and speak in tongues. That may happen if God chooses to do that. Wonderful. But more in the sense of a spiritual renewal, a re-energizing, um, eyes open to what mm-hmm. God is doing now because the Lord is not dead and the Lord is active even in our own midst. I mean, we had someone join the church on Sunday. We have this wonderful summer camp coming up and 
I think it is very difficult not to be blinded by our grief and what used to be. So I'm excited um, that uh, Pentecost Sunday is coming uh, this week, and I trust the Spirit to um, help me preach um, an on-time, helpful word. Yeah, I think what is really interesting about this time and where we as pastors can be really faithful to our congregations is to say, look, what we are seeing all around us is um, an uncovering of what really is. I mean, the truth is that even though church official membership is in decline, I I do not think that, um, I'll speak specifically about the United States, is, is less is, is somehow used to be closer to Jesus and has now drifted away. I mean, I think that there was a time when the institutions surrounding Christianity were large and impressive. And we look at that and think, okay, well, people must have been more faithful then. Yes. But when we look at what was happening, you know, the, the height of denominationalism in this country was at a time when you know, segregation and Jim Crow were flourishing and nobody saw any problem with that. So I, I, I think that there's a, you know, it's like Jesus passing the fig tree on his way to the temple during Holy Week. There's this fig tree, which is bright and glossy and full, and there's no fruit on it. And Jesus curses it and, and it withers and dies. And, and the story is always so confusing. We don't know like what Jesus has against this plant and um, particularly given since we know that it was the Passover so we know what time of year it was and so we know agriculturally that the fig tree um, should not have been bearing fruit in that season and then that story is unlocked to us once we learn that in um, Hebrew thought um, the fig tree was um, a metaphor and a stand-in for for the temple, for the people of faith. And Jesus was saying, hey, this um, practice of um, Yahwehism, like, you know, we are God's people and we have this big temple and we are so faithful and we have these flourishing um, priestly institutions and we have the Sadducees and we have the Pharisees and we have all kinds of people who who have positions of authority um, and who practice a version of faith, but it's actually not bearing the fruit that God wants it to bear. And I just think a lot of our churches, though they looked green and flourishing and large, they were not bearing fruit. And what I think now is we are seeing that the church is weak and the gift in that is, that's not new news. <laughs> um, we, we, as humans, have always been easily led astray from the will of Jesus towards the will of human desire. And um, seeing that we're weak means we can seek the Lord. And, you know, I do think it's so poignant to think about the first followers of Jesus that what they knew in their own experience, in their own hearts what they knew about the power and the presence and the revolution, the cosmic revolution that God had just enacted through the death. So the confrontation 
and in the death of Jesus and then the vindication of the resurrection. Like they knew that was true, but nothing around them yet reflected that reality. And so to be the small number of people who really did not have any um, social capital and they didn't have any institutional credentialing. I mean, they didn't have anything except the truth and you know, they had the power and presence of God, which is everything. But I mean, it's just, again, that gap between what something looks like and what it is. And for a long time, because the Christian church in America has had um, secular power and prominence, it has been easy for us to assume that that meant that God was behind that and that that meant that God was pleased with everything that we were doing. And we didn't, we didn't really seek the Lord. Um, we, we saw the evidence of, you know, perhaps evangelistic campaigns or the control we had on boards or the institutions that we founded. And I'm not saying that all of those things were bad. I'm just saying we assumed that what was good in our eyes and what was fruit in our eyes was good and fruitful in God's eyes. And that's, I mean, the witness of scripture would, would cause us to question those assumptions. And so I do think being able to say like, oh, wow, we actually have nothing. And that means we turn to God with holy urgency and say, you know, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in it not as a moral code or an idea or even a future reality. We believe that it is um, the power of redemption in the world now. And we want to be filled and deployed by that power. And and so whatever happens in the appearance of things, that we, we are no longer a church that is going to be blinded by what things look like. Um, we're going to be that's good. Interested in seeking the spirit and aware that you can be filled with the spirit and you can be walking right down the center of the path that God lays out to you and experiencing lots of opposition, not just from outsiders, but from folks who not only think they are, but actually are insiders um, who love the Lord and who are loved by the Lord and who are deeply embedded in these traditions. And yet, you know, we have strongholds where we hold back and withhold and resist and God's delivering us. But birth, as my friend, our friend, Pastor Barbara always reminds me, like birth is, is painful and it's messy and um, new life doesn't come without labor. So I think you just wrote the first part of my sermon. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Not going to find that in a commentary. <laughs> so what is astonishing you? Um, I, I think what I'm astonished about right now as I reflect um, just over the past week and the week that's ahead, um, there's, a, um, there's just a lot of really significant changes that are ahead of us at the Grove right now. Um, we just had a, um, a, a very long time and gifted um, leader of our worship ministries um, step aside um, and, you know, just change her role, not, not leave the church, but change her role. And so 
you know, there's a, there's a gap right now and people are, um, we're seeking who the Lord has, is calling. And there are people within the community who are stepping into that, um, space, but it, but that's a, that's a big transition. That's big change. Um, we have, you know, a couple other really significant decisions that we will make as a congregation in the next couple weeks that either way are just going to be really, really significant. They're going to change us. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm navigating some, um, just some, some things that are difficult, um, in terms of some relationships within the church that are, um, changing and are painful. And, um, I don't know if you've noticed this about me, but in my temperament, <laughs> I like how you're already laughing. This is going to be good. Um, I'm a, I'm a little bit dramatic. <laughs> Wait, I, what? I know, I know. I, I tend to be a person. I know this about myself. I'm a, you know, I'm a passionate person. And I think that that's a great gift that God like, Too bad this isn't me. a video podcast because people would see your hand gestures. <laughs> <and> like, even... <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, and I say this to my, my daughters a lot, um, particularly one of my daughters who reminds me most of myself that I, you know, I, I think that being passionate is a, I know that being passionate is a, is a great gift that God has given me. It's a, it's a way, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. Um, and I know that for a many times in my life, uh, it, it was a gift that it would use me instead of me using it. Like I could really just let it run, run amok. And, and I would also imagine that there were at least seasons in life that it brought criticism. Well, sure. I mean, yes. And also I think, you know, being, having that kind of just unction about everything I think, you know, has served me very well and, and sort of led me, um, in places that were beyond my understanding. So I, you know, but, but also, I mean, it just has a shadow side. And I, and I talk to, um, especially one of my daughters a lot about like, this is your great gift. And you also have to learn how not to be, you know, controlled by it, right. How not to be, you know, just how to, how to hold it lightly and, and grow into it and not, um, and so I, I think, you know, given the magnitude of, of, of what's happening within the congregation and what's in front of the congregation and the, the continuing just sort of spiritual challenge of trying to finish this book and, and do this new process where I'm not in control and, and dealing with some, you know, some significant, um, painful shifts in some relationships. I think what's astonishing me is I'm just noticing, and I credit this a hundred thousand million trillion percent to, um, the faithfulness of God in reforming us that I just, um, I, 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 I do have a piece in navigating things that I didn't used to have. I am, um, honestly able to be less anxious than I used to. Like I know how now to walk in faith and not in anxiety. I know how to just like feel the things I'm feeling and also sort of hold them at a little bit of distance and, and objectively, I, I know how 
to be non-reactive. And, you know, those are traits that I think come really naturally to you. I'm like, I think some people are just naturally born with that ability. That's their natural gifting, not mine. Which comes with a different set of right. I mean, shadow, right? right. Like every, I can, I can be distant and aloof <laughs> right. and hold people. I'm, I've had, I had one congregation say to me, um, and they were very sincere. Oh, we didn't, we didn't think you liked us, right. right? Just because of the way I'm wired. And again, God is faithful to help us use that in the right way. Right, just to mature and to deepen. And I, I think, you know, as we approach Pentecost and we get ready to really focus on what I was telling um, my middle daughter today, I was just asking her if she knew what Pentecost was, which, I mean, dagger to the heart, she did not. And I'm like, okay, you're inside the church. We do this every year, but okay. But I mean, I do think, I was saying to her, like, it's, it is, it's the most important holy day. And, you know, we, we don't center it in the way we center Christmas and Easter. The culture doesn't center it yes. because it's not, commercial it's not and it's not possible to commercialize that not that i want to put <laughs> the spirit of the christian industrial complex to the test <laughs> but i mean it it is this you know it's a great relinquishing and um and a great becoming and and it's a day when the disciples really were transformed into new people and those new people weren't other than who they were they were just sort of deeper healthier more mature versions of who they were they were but but really what was in them wasn't of them. And I think, you know, I just look at, you know, you know there's a part of me that's just sort of, and I'm sorry to make this, I'm really trying to make this about the Holy Spirit and it's coming out as being like about me. But I'm just realizing that there are some things that happen that are we're going through now that in in previous seasons, it just would have, you know, thrown me, I, I, you know, all I could have done would have been just like constantly processing it over and over and over again. And just, you know, and, and I am able, you know, I just feel like the spirit of the Lord, which is in me, but not of me is able to sort of say, you know, steady on, not that it's cute, not that it's easy, not that I am feeling good because I'm confident everything that's going to, is going to be what I want. Cause I'm not at all confident of that, but I do feel that no matter what lies ahead, there's a way to be faithful right now. And, you know, by the grace of God, I'm able to do that and imperfectly for sure. Um, and I just, you know, it's just astonishing me because I know, I know myself in my flesh, as Paul would say, and it's not in me. And so, and I think, you know, to your point about, you know, we're saying that we pray the Holy Spirit's going to fall and that may not look like people, you know, falling out in the spirit or speaking in tongues or some of these sort of really um, visible appearances of being spirit filled, right? And and those are real, and I am not discounting them. But I also think there's a way that we think, well, if it doesn't look like that, then the spirit isn't in a person. And I think the reality is, when the Holy Spirit is in us and we have second birth in Christ. W- we become the people that we were created to be. We become deeper, truer, and healthier versions of ourselves. And so the spirit, there are just very visible and dramatic 
loud manifestations. And, and again, I want to make sure no one can misunderstand me. I am not denying them. I am not saying they are less important. I'm just saying there are other ways um, that the spirit falls on people and remakes them that sometimes are subtler and don't look as supernatural, but they are. Yeah, I had someone say to me on Sunday, uh, because I preached that text where um, it's John 14, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will send you another advocate, the spirit of truth. And then Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit. And someone said to me on Sunday after worship, if you want to uh, prove or show the Holy Spirit, Pastor, you need to perform a miracle. And my first thought was, well, you do realize that anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ is itself a miracle. Right. That is one of the greatest miracles. Um, um, Presbyterians don't talk about um, having life verses. I think that's more of a Baptist and Pentecostal thing. Um, but um, I have a life verse that is a, 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 a verse of scripture that speaks to me. It is... Uh, I, it is a life verse. It's, it's, it's thematic of my life. And that is um, Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says that God who began a good work in you will, will be, be faithful, faithful to, to complete, complete it, it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so as I um, look at my life in retrospect, I can see this growth, this maturing mm -hmm. that is definitely in me, but not of me. Mm -hmm. And of all of the, you know, the outward manifestations, the spectacular manifestations of the spirit that we see uh, in the New Testament, we also see um, character development and maturing. I mean, one of the most widely known, but least appreciated metaphors for the work of the spirit in the life of people is you know, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right. the, the, the sap of the Holy Spirit flows from Jesus, the vine into us, the branches. And then he says, you will bear much fruit. Yeah. You don't produce the fruit. You don't make the fruit, but the fruit happens in your life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you said something, you know, you said the word, you said the word miracle and you said the word spectacular. And I think that that's our problem is yeah. it's like the spirit at work in the world. We divide is, those two. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and the spirit in the wor work in the world is like, if, if you think about it, like a ring or like a rainbow, there's a whole spectrum of color, but we can only uh, perceive or we're only attracted to a sliver of that. And so we say, if it doesn't look like that, then we don't deem it to be spectacular and we don't deem it to be a miracle. And so, you know, and, and Jesus had that issue in his day, right? That people were coming to him and being like, you know, dance miracle boy, like do something imp that impresses right, us. And right. he was saying like, that's not what I'm here for. Like I will give you signs so that you can know that these teachings, which are radical in the sense that they're back to the root of creation and the intentions of God and radical as we commonly use it as in widely divergent from what is the accepted, you know, settled orthodox understanding of the faith saying, I'm giving you signs that you will understand that though these teachings of mine are radical, you know, I, 
I have to be, who else but someone sent from God can open the eyes of the blind, right? So the signs are there, but they're not, you're not supposed to believe in the signs. You're not supposed to believe in the spectacle. You're not supposed to put your faith in the miracle. You're supposed to see what Jesus is saying about who God is and, and the, and the revelation of shalom in the kingdom of God and say, I believe in that. I want that. I'm walking towards that. And, and I believe that God is doing that and I want to lean into it and not resist it and not fear it. And I, and so I, I think that that, that's the real issue is to sort of say, you know, to approach life with Jesus, like we are, at Burger King and saying like, I want this part, but not that part, or I want it to look like this in my life. Instead of saying, no, I am fully surrendered to the power and beauty of who you are and what you're doing in the world, God. And if it doesn't please me, that's okay. As long as it pleases you. And I think, you know, for a long time, I saw something the other day and I was like, man, it's, it's, it's slogan like, but it's, it's real. Um, you know, somebody was saying like, if, if God did not spend, send his son Jesus into the world to condemn it, why do you think that's your assignment? Like, why do you think that your that what being faithful looks like for you is to go out and tell everybody else what's wrong with them? Like, why do you think seeing the brokenness or the limitedness or the error in other people means you're released from your obligation to love them. You know, and I know that sometimes having a challenging conversation with someone is loving. I I appreciate that, but to just look for what's wrong and to approach everyone from a posture of suspicion and hostility, I mean, that's not loving. Um, And and the spirit of God, I mean, and this is sort of where I think I'm heading for, for Pentecost Sunday is, you know, the most radical thing that we can do is love one another. Mm-hmm. And we think like, oh, well, that's not impressive. I mean, you've never done it. We talked about that on Sunday and I said, well, let's, let's go to that place in first Corinthians 13 that we just love right. to read at right. weddings. And I started to read it, and you know, it says, "Love is patient. Love is kind." Well, okay, so we we mess up there already every right. day. I mean, right. so we think this is so easy, but when you start to walk it out, no, no, this is much more because difficult. I'd rather speak in tongues. I don't want to be yes. kind to you. I want to speak in tongues. Do you and, know why? And because your flesh wants to make life and right. even the ministry of the church for you and about you. Right, because we uh, we are chasing the spectacle. We think it, and, and it is true. That even within the church, people will be impressed by something that they see is a supernatural manifestation of God's spirit. And if you're kind, people will be like, oh, well, you know, that's not whatever. Anyone can be kind. Not not me. Couldn't be me. And so I think that that's the deal. Like to be patient and to be kind, we automatically assume that people who are patient and kind are just people who don't have anything better to do. And so, you know, this is the challenge. Like we neglect to do things that we think are beneath us in our deep Christian maturity, not understanding that, you know, Jesus literally puts aside the splendor of heaven and the glory of, you know, sonship to come down and enter into human history and, you know, endure all discount the shame to, to do what essentially walk alongside people who were often walking in error and who were messing up and who were often, you know, actively opposing him deserting and betraying him and to kneel down and wash their feet. And the most 
the, the most radical expressions of God's love that Jesus performed were not the miracles. They were these, these acts of self-emptying love that we continue to struggle to see as holy. Um, and we just, we want the razzle dazzle and Jesus is trying to deliver us out of that. And, and we resist and I'm part of the, we just, Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's all of us. Um, and my, my dad is not known for a love of religious music, but in growing up, there was one gospel song, and I think it's like by some gospel quartet or something, one gospel song that my dad loved. And the, the, the words um, are, please be patient with me. God is not, not through with me yet. Me yet. Yeah. When God gets through with me, I shall come forth as pure gold. And I just love that sense of God is at work in me. I am becoming something greater than you see. And I would expand that to say that is true of all of us. Right. And therefore, we need to honor that and value that in one another. And as a matter of fact, the scripture says... Um, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. Mm -hmm. We know that we shall be like him when we um, see him. And when we come to these places of uncertainty and disruption and change, and they're just very uncomfortable and they, they provoke anxiety in us. And that's not sinful, but just to be aware and not to be led into um, enmity with one another just because we're like, wow, something is going on and I'm not in control of it. And I don't quite know what it's all going to look like. All I can know is that God is good and Christ is risen. So how can I seek the grace to let that knowledge be my foundation and let that be my first thing and let that be the lens through which I look at all these other things and to say, you know, God, as Paul says, you know, the grace of Jesus is so profound that God can make all things work together for good. Even the things that are, you know, tragic and sinful and distortions, you know, like Paul's own life is such a, is such an embodied embodiment of that story that he was actively opposing the gospel until, you know, he was on his way to murder more Christians. And, you know, Jesus shows up on the road and says, it's you and, you know, and everything that, that all, all the, the gifting that had been malformed and twisted by the enemy then was redeemed and used for good by the spirit. And so, you know, just being able to have that deep, deep steadiness of no matter what's going on, Jesus is still risen. And so I know the end of the story and that allows me to show up and walk in faithfulness and in freedom and with ease, not because of the circumstances, um, but because I really, you know, know that, you know, I, I, I've seen bigger turnarounds. Um, anyway, I, yeah. So what are you thinking about? Well, you know, I'm not a huge uh, sports fan, but there are. Say what? I know, right? Um, but I do tune in, and I I I watch. Um, like I'm 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 one of those people that, you know, I tune into certain sports at certain times of the year, and so right now, 
it's basketball, and I'll, I will watch games here and there. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a huge fan, but I tune in. There are some things that I care about. Uh, but lately, what has my attention is a story that a lot of sports fans and commentators are talking about, and that is a player in the NBA uh, by the name of Ja Morant. He is a player for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, and listen, I'm, I'm from Memphis. I grew up there. I have no idea why they are called the Grizzlies. There are no grizzly bears in West Tennessee. Okay, tangent. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I just have to say that. Um, but uh, Ja has gotten in trouble again for um, flashing a gun um, oh, on gosh. Instagram. And this is the second time he's received a warning. Not only that, he's done things allegedly. Um, for example, um, it's alleged that his mother had some kind of conflict concerning customer service at a sports store, shoe store, at a mall in Memphis. So she called her son. He had his boys, and they came and gave the guy a hard time. Uh, once they showed up, um, I, I think a student, his little sister is a volleyball player at a high school uh, in the Memphis area. And um, I think a student yelled something at the sister. Mom was in the stands, called Ja. They came. I think they had a scuffle with security. Uh, I think it's alleged that someone um, uh, in his group uh, hit, no, slapped the, a cell phone out of a student's hand. I mean, just those kinds of things keep happening. And so um, last week or, or several days ago when um, he flashed a gun again on Instagram, uh, people are asking what is going on with this guy. He's 23 years old. Um, he has lost, I think, somewhere around $50 million um, in endorsements and is at a place where he may lose even more. Um, now the league is talking about suspending him or they're, 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 there are talks that the league may suspend him for like half the season. And that not only affects him and his money, but also the team, the city of Memphis, for those who um, that somehow their, their business is tied to um, that team. I mean, it affects a lot of people. And um, so this, this story is really gotten to me on a couple of levels. Um, one, I'm asking myself if we, and, and listen, I'm, I spend a lot of time translating things between different cultures, specifically African-American culture and white culture. I'm not really going to try to translate uh, right now, uh, but I'm asking myself if we, um, African-Americans, have adopted too much of Western individualism. Um, because listen, it, it is not a crime <laughs> to have a gun in this country. It's not a right. Uh, I mean, it, right? It's not the, the irony, right? It's not a gun to flash a gun, but 
um, you know, the NBA has certain rules. And when you sign a contract, especially a contract worth millions of dollars, you can't go skiing in the off season. You can't go skydiving or, mm -hmm. you know, water skiing or anything like that because, you know, you get hurt. That's that affects a whole lot of other people. But I'm just asking myself, are we too individualistic? You know, are we just not thinking about us as a people anymore? Um, because those around him are saying, well, he can do whatever he wants. Second Amendment, he has the right to do this, the right to do that. Um, it's about, it's his life. Who, you know, no one has any, should have anything else to say. Um, so I'm, I'm asking myself that question. Are we, have we gotten to the place where we have adopted Western individualism and we're not, and we're no longer thinking about us as a people? And that makes me sad. But also, and probably even more, I'm asking myself about the role of the church, uh, uh, specifically the black church, as an agent, a source, a force of, of, stability and morality in people's lives and it seems to me especially with people my age and younger that I don't know again the church has just adopted seems to have adopted too much of the values of the world I mean I every once in a while I, I tune into things like love and hip-hop and it seems like I mean, if I'm if I'm being honest, there's a there's a, a good segment of the black church that looks more like love and hip hop than light and holiness, and I I'm I'm just concerned that the church as moral agent within black culture has been severely compromised. Like I'm 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 hearing black Christians and this, and this blows my mind. Like talk about karma. Like seriously, like they make reference to karma like it's a thing. Like when did we start believing in karma? Um I hear black Christians Talk a lot about manifesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna manifest this and manifest. Well, like, what, 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 what is this? So there has been, along with white evangelicalism, this deep drift away from the truth and values of Scripture. And this story for me about this NBA player. Clearly, for me, it's not just about him. It It's saying something, it's speaking to me about something that is undermining my people in this country. Um, and this is not a conversation we need to have with any other group. This is not about white people. This is, this is about us, that there's something that's undermining us that we we are allowing uh to undermine our values and stability and um i don't know it, it's it's getting to me what i think is interesting about that story and the way you initially framed it about sort of a an individualism as opposed to a collective understanding is i think um just from 
hearing what you said, the idea that you would be uh, that, I mean, it's, it, that is an embodiment of a dominant story about what role masculinity is supposed to play in the community. Like that, it, it is, I mean, the, in the instances that you've named, like uh, uh, his mother and his sister needing, you know, protection and support and, you know, um, they've been dishonored and so he needs to go and, you know, you know perform um, threat and strength in order to restore their honor. I mean, that is a way of understanding how men are supposed to have a communal identity, right? Like mm-hmm. you you didn't tell me stories about times when he necessarily perceived a threat or a dishonor to himself. And then it was him showing up in a public sphere on behalf of other people. So that's what I think is, is part of, you know, the, the challenge of that narrative is I, I think um, it, for so many men in general, and obviously things get, get shifted and contextualized in different cultures, but men in general, and I think this is reinforced within some branches of the church, this idea that this is your role, you're the man, you're the head, you're the leader, you be strong, you, um, you know, make threats, you, you, uh, threaten violence for the sake of the good. And I, and I, I think that's, what's a problem is it's just really insidious, uh, insidious that someone can be able to say, well, you know, how would I, it would be unfaithful for me not to show up in strength and power on behalf of my mother and my sister who I believe are dependent upon me or who are weaker, you know, and I think that, you know, the deeper issue, the meta issue is we in the church, (laughs) when the story of Jesus is the central manifestation of the power of God, we're supposed to understand strength and power differently. We're supposed to have an alternative story to tell the world that Jesus in the act of accomplishing salvation looked weak and when we try to show up in a way that is um, impressive in the world's eyes, you know, that things can get really problematic really, tw- you know, really quickly. And so, I mean, I just, I have a, um, you know, if <laughs> if I were queen of the world and we're all grateful, I'm not. But if I were queen of the world, I would, you know, snap my fingers and there'd be no guns anywhere, everywhere. But I do think it's really interesting, you know, I'd be interested to know um you know, whereas some people, you know, you've got congressional representatives sending out Christmas cards where everyone in, in their family is holding a gun. It's interesting to me, do I like that? No, I don't. I hate it. But it's interesting to me that people would say, well, if a young black man shares a picture of himself holding a gun, that's a problem. But if a white government official sends out a Christmas card holding guns in front of a Christmas tree, that's freedom of speech. Like I don't like any of it, but I I do think you have to be really mindful of. And I mean, obviously, I'm not telling you anything I know, but I think it's just important to have that other layer of awareness. That again, um, yeah. And at this point, you know, I I'm thinking, well, they can do what they want for us. Right. We've got to live by a different set of values. And I understand that there are a lot of especially young men who are in a place of deep despair. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one reason 
I don't have science. This is what I suspect. I suspect one reason we see an uptick in suicide mm -hmm. is because you have a lot of young men who have been told that their primary value and their primary role is to be provider and protector. Mm -hmm. And I do in, think... Well, oh. I was thinking in a time when you may meet and fall in love with a woman who makes more than you and you are not built nor do you have the temperament of an MMA fighter, right? right. Or you don't care to um, have an arsenal of weapons in your house. And, 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 and if that is where you are in life, you struggle with what does it mean to be a man in a context where <laughs> your your value is protection and provision and that's that's not how you that's not how you roll well and i think you know that the there there is a real way that as constricting and harmful as they are the dominant culture's insistence that women be nurturers and caregivers and sort of exist to serve others that is can be that is twisted and it can be dehumanizing and demeaning but there is but we were made to care for one another and so there's a way that that there's a life and a meaning and a purpose in life that can be found in caring for people and there are always people who can be cared for and women are encouraged to do that and find their identity in it and men are not and yeah, so men men are told and I hope this isn't offensive. I don't think it is. I'm hear my heart on this. But the narrative that many men are given is that the woman you fall in love with is the prize. Mm -hmm. You are not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I sense that in many men there is this deep... I heard someone define manhood as coming to terms with the reality that once you leave your mother's house, you are no one's first priority. Yeah, I mean, I think women are allowed to be vulnerable and men are not. Yeah, and so that's then, exactly even it. in the context of the most intimate relationships, there comes a time when you, ready or not, you have to be vulnerable. And you want to be vulnerable. And you need to be vulnerable. Yes. And there's freedom and life and joy in being vulnerable. And if you're taught that you can't, that it's a betrayal of your essence to be vulnerable, you're going to be locked in a prison. And even those closest to you are going to be a threat. And I, you know, I just think, I mean, this is what we talk about when we talk about toxic masculinity. So I really, um, yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a hard it's a hard story. And I also just want to say it's tough when a 23-year-old kid, because of the way, because of lots of choices that we've made as a society, when the well-being of a community is dependent upon a 23-year-old kid's ability to make millions of dollars or support an industry that makes millions of dollars so that businesses, I mean, like, just like, that's tough. I mean, it, it's tough that we can't um, prioritize our um economic flourishing around people who, who you know give care or around teachers or around you know first responders but but it's around people who do spectacular things on a basketball court which is fine like I that's great but you know I 
it's a lot to dump on a young man that, and it's true. You're not wrong. It's just messed up. Um, so, so what are you thinking about? Okay. Well, I want to talk and I, I think it's actually a nice bookend to this story. Um, I, I want to talk about white castles. I, I so like white castles. I love white castles. Yes. It's my absolute favorite. I love oh, that's White right. Castles. You're, you're from um, Louisville, I, Kentucky, I, yes. and that's where I went to seminary. And so that's where I grew a love for I White love White Castles. Castles. Yes. They're amazing if you, you don't like them. You can even find them in the refrigerated section yes. of the grocery store. In the freezer section yes. of the grocery store. And I can tell you how to make them not awful off, offline if anyone cares. But anyway, I, I just, I love them, I love them, I love them, I love them. There's not one anywhere in North Carolina, and it makes me super sad. Um, but I, yeah, and I, I just... People have strong feelings about them. And you know that Ed Sheeran song, Castle on the Hill? No. I always think it's about White Castle and it's not. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just really okay with saying I don't know a single Ed Sheeran song. And so, anyway, um, so I came across this story, I think in the Washington Post today, that I love on every level um, about a, a woman well, and a man who got married at a white castle in Arizona and um, had the pictures. They had like a medieval themed wedding and they did it wow. at a white castle. And um, the reason is because she um, experienced homelessness as a teenager. She went into foster care when she was four years old, um, was in 94 different foster homes wow. during her childhood. Many of those homes were abusive and neglectful. Wow. So, I mean, that's just astonishing in and of itself. My. And, um, and so she ended up uh, running away at age 13 and was then just living on the streets and trying to survive. And as a part of that, you know, seeking comfort and seeking to numb her pain, she, you know, was uh, abusing alcohol and um, narcotics. And that definitely makes sense, uh, being alone in the world as a young girl. And she said that when she was a young teenager, um, she went into a White Castle's one day and the woman behind the counter looked at her and said, oh, sweetie, why don't you go into the bathroom and get yourself cleaned up? And then when she came out, the woman gave her a sack full of hamburgers and wow. said, you know, we, we just have to throw these away. Will you just take them? And she said after that, and she was moving all over Kentucky and Tennessee, and whenever she went into a White Castle, um, the person at the register would give her food. And she said, I came to know that that was a place I could go and I could get food and people would see me as a human. And, um, so all these years later, when it was time to get married, like she wanted to get married there. And, you know, and so there's an element of that that's just like kitschy and fun and I'm here for wow. it. Like they had a hamburger shaped cake and the, instead of throwing petals, they, they threw like the flower girls flew like, um, dried onions, which is <laughs> great. But I also was just like so deeply meaningful to me. Um, and I think, you know, on, approaching Pentecost, this idea that, you know, and she said in the story, she said, I don't even know which White Castles I went to. Like, I wish I could go back to the one where I first, you know, found that um, lifeline. And she doesn't know. But I think, you know, to me, when we think about what is, what does it look like to have a church that's full of the spirit? It, it's not an, an institutionally strong church where the people are necessarily in charge of the government or running nonprofits or, you know, it, it's a church full of people who are deployed out into the world 
with the eyes of Christ, to be the hands of Christ, who, who don't consider any place that God has them to be beneath them and who are waking up every day to say like, Lord, what's my assignment? And when a young girl walks in looking rough and maybe dangerous, you know, sees it as a chance to say, you know, I'll give you what I have, which is, you know, a chance to use the bathroom and clean yourself up and, and I can give you food and I can't, fix you. I can't solve your problems. I can't whatever, but I, I, you know, I can do that and know that that small thing is the right thing to do. And I, and I think, you know, it, she didn't say I showed up in churches and churches fed her and maybe churches did feed her, but I think a lot of us in churches and I'm, and I'm part of the us, you know, when, when people show up, we want to send them away to an agency Instead of, yes. you know, saying, no, the person here in front of me right now is Jesus in disguise. And what does it look like to be faithful to them and to be faithful to them in a way that might not, you know, get resolved with a bow where someone ends me a ticker tape parade like that. Whoever that was behind the cashier that day, who knows if she knows if she saw that story, if she, you know, but it it doesn't matter. So just like having being filled with the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, as Jesus was filled with his own spirit, to be able to say, I can do something that is righteous and faithful. And if it's not understood and not celebrated and not seen, I don't, that's okay because I know what it is, right? And so to give a homeless teenager a bag full of White Castle sliders, you know, the world just says like, so what? Like, who cares? It's just kindness to a kid that the world would say, you know, maybe there's a chance if she gets into a program that's funded by Bill Gates and blah, 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 blah. But otherwise, she's out of luck. And, you know, why bother? And and I think that's the thing about saying, like, we all have the capacity to be filled by the Holy Spirit and to be the hands and feet of Christ and to love one another in our weakness, in our limits, and to manifest and point to the power of God in that. And, you know, her story isn't White Castle saved me, right? Like, I mean, I don't know what her story is, but to me from the outside looking in, it looks to me like the hand of God miraculously sustained her and brought her to a place of, you know, stability and love and a relationship where she could be safely vulnerable and stop numbing her pain. But like, that was a part of it. And it was a small thing. And it was a big thing. And, um, so anyway, I love that story and I, and that's what I want to sort of both really lean into the idea that something happens when we're filled with the spirit of Jesus and and we are changed and it is, I mean, everything is spiritual, everything is supernatural. And so it is supernatural and also like demystify it. Like it will take every ounce of the grace of God that God can stuff in you to be love and love one another and to be patient and to be kind and to not keep a record of wrongs and to not take offense and to, you know, lay down your life and to tell the truth even when people scorn you and to walk into a conflict and tell the truth and you know you're going to get like beaten up and rejected and you're not going to win and to show up to say no to something that's wrong, even though, you know, 
It's not going to change the score, but you're bearing witness to righteousness. All of those things take the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit doesn't need us to get a victory lap. And if we are really mature and centered in Christ, we shouldn't need to get a victory lap either. Like we should be so satisfied in our interior castle with Jesus that we can be sustained by the joy of the Lord. And then whatever happens externally is just, you know, is just overflow. So that's what I'm thinking about um, and how beautiful that White Castle wedding was and just the the transformative act of a bag of sliders um, and wanting us to be that, the White Castle Church. So. Yeah, as you were talking, um, an odd place of scripture came to mind. Remember that place where Moses asked God to see God's glory. Mm -hmm. And God says, you cannot, you know, you can see me live, I'll put you to the cleft of a rock and I'll pass by. Right. And, um, Exodus 34, six and seven, it says the Lord passed before him. That's Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's verse six. And I, it may be another translation, but I thought the word compassion Mm -hmm. was also in there. Um, And um, that's what I heard in that story about White Mm -hmm. Castle, just compassion. And that's, uh, that's another um, virtue that we just dismiss, but it is powerful. Because we want to be great. Yeah. And we have this desire for greatness that causes us to, I mean, just like the Samaritan, right? Like, I can't stop and help this loser on the side of the road. I got to go because I'm going to the temple and I'm going to do great ministry and I'm going to do something important. And to say, I'm going to stop and try to care for this person, I'm going to put aside my plans to do this act of compassion, you know, that is not greatness in the world that is passing away, but it is in the kingdom and we have to have kingdom values. And I think we just can't get them until we are filled with the spirit of Jesus. And I'm reminded there that there are many times in the scripture before Jesus performs a miracle, the text will say something like, and he saw them like a leper or a blind person and had compassion for them that that is it's the seed it's the open door the open window to the miraculous work of god and how how beautiful and powerful um that this white castle worker or this woman had compassion for this girl and what an indictment um against the church that often we do not we do not and we've got more important things to do and what i love about the story is it wasn't just the one place the one time it was she said like when i i knew that i could go there and they would always give me something to eat i knew that so white castle became the place where she knew she'd be taken care of how many i mean i'm just thinking of the street that derida church is on you can go up and down the street, and there are many church buildings. I'm like, oh, I mean, that that might be a sermon title coming up this summer. 
if the church were White Castle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really, it's really beautiful. Um, so anyway, I love the story, and I'm going to, it might end up in my Pentecost sermon. I don't know. I do love a White Castle. Well, it does remind <laughs> me of the story after, I think it's in Acts chapter 3, after Pentecost, or maybe Acts 4, where Peter and John encounter a lame man at the temple mm-hmm. and who's I asking for money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I, that there is, what I have, well, and there is compassion because yeah. they could have walked past this man. It's a, we got better stuff to do. Right. Well, and I think, you know, that's the issue is that if we, I think we'll be led to the place where Jesus wants us to be. If we will listen when people say, you know, this is my, this is my need. This is my trauma. This is my hurt. As opposed to, well, I've got an agenda and I can't be turned away from it. So, so we are out of time. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's church to ride a prez, you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You can worship with them on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. You can check out their podcast, which has all of Yolanda's messages on it. You can find it on the Podbean website, or you can check out their YouTube page for worship or join them uh, you know, live stream on Facebook, right? Live think, stream from the website. From the website. Sorry. See, you'd think I'd know this by now. It's all good. Yes. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Oh, is it dot .com? Yeah, oh, you don't even know. <laughs> I you don't even growth. know. I just let the record note that I struggle to get all your stuff, but I don't think you could do mine. Ours. Well, and look but at my pronouns. Are, my pronouns betrayed me. But you are kind, <laughs> compassionate, slow <laughs> to anger, and full of steadfast <laughs> no, mercy. But, but the Lord is working on me. I am not yet who I will be. Uh, but you can check out um, the Grove Church podcast for messages. You can go to our YouTube chain page or you can uh, worship with us Sundays at 10 o'clock where the dress code is wear clothes. Right. I just never get tired of that joke. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.